Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we have been affirming today that you are a good God. We have been celebrating the fact that you daily provide to us what we need. That doesn't mean, Lord, that you give us lives that have no troubles, no problems, but it means that you're faithful in the midst of all those. We pray, Lord, today that as we look into your word, that the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that is able to pierce down into our, our thoughts, our motives, that, Lord, you would help us to um, be aware that there are things in our hearts sometimes that need to be extracted and need to be replaced with gospel beliefs and gospel attitudes and gospel living. And so we pray, Father, that you as the surgeon would help us when we have heart ailments and heart sickness that needs to be cured. We pray that you might use your gospel today, help point us to Christ our Savior, we ask, as we look into your word, and we are deeply thankful that your spirit is, is promised and provided to us to help us in this regard. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I don't know how many of you may suffer with the ailment of arthritis, but uh, certainly it's nothing to be envious of. It's nothing to be uh, wishing you would ever have. Um, and arthritis is actually the inflammation of the joints, and oftentimes it leads to tremendous amount of pain. Uh, it oftentimes is bearing on the weather, so like a day to like today when it's raining and the barometric pressure has gone down, many people feel that stiffness, that pain in their joints all the more. And sometimes arthritis uh, does worsen over time, and there are situations where if uh, untreated, it can become more and more difficult to move about. The joint does not want to move uh, very freely. I remember years ago uh, visiting a woman in Virginia who, again, um, certain visits are memorable. You don't forget certain people. There are many people that are, I can't say their names any longer, but I can certainly remember this woman. And uh, she was an elderly woman who attended church weekly, lived alone, but suffered with rheumatoid arthritis. And I will never forget when I went to visit her, <clears throat> you would try to shake hands with her, which I didn't do really very much but other than just put my hand out, but her fingers were gnarled, just bent into the strangest shape, and her shoes had been cut open so that the exposing her toes, which were also gnarled and twisted because of this horrible uh, disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and despite her pain, which just getting out of her chair was extremely painful, I'm sure, she always greeted me with the biggest smile on her face as if I had made her day to come visit her in her home. Uh, she was a very wonderful, joyous believer in Jesus Christ that always left me quite moved <coughs> after I left. <coughs> Excuse me. Researchers tell us that one of the underlying causes of rheumatoid arthritis can be and is a problem in which it's a, caused by autoimmune issues where your own body is beginning to attack some of the uh, substances that are in your joints and uh, the lining of those joints. And it causes, again, inflammation and joint damage. It, it's a terrible thing. How many of you have some form of arthritis? I'm just curious. Okay, a number of you do. Wow, okay, my heart goes out to you. Well, I begin with that thought today 
and aware that that's a problem in the physical body, I've been aware that there's, in a sense, another sad problem going on, which I would call spiritual arthritis, that occurs among the members of the body of Christ. And by that I mean that there's this self-focused attitudes where people become focused on themselves primarily, their own needs, their own wants, their own attempts to try to be acceptable before God. And they focus on themselves to the point where it destroys, in a sense, the connective tissues that are supposed to hold us together in close harmony as members of the body of Christ. And therefore, the, the result of that is there's less cooperative spirit among the body, members of the body. There's lessened love expressed among the different members of the body of Christ. And I've tried to give a name or feel like the proper name for this kind of debilitating spiritual disease is the word envy. Envy can be like a spiritual arthritis problem in the body of Christ. Now we're in a series in our sermons now looking at trying to understand what is healthy fellowship, what is healthy gospel-centered relationships, what do they look like, what are they characterized by. And the Bible gives us many insights into what love really entails. We, our culture gives us a lot of distorted, twisted, and perverted ideas of what love is, but the Bible gives us wonderful uh, ideas. And Jesus said, even as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. And so Jesus is calling us to one anothering love, which we are calling reciprocal love. And we're looking this morning at one, another one of these reciprocal loves. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. It's page 1388 in your pew Bible. We're looking at Galatians chapter 5. And this morning as we look at this, I want us to examine how does the, spirit, how does the Bible diagnose and how would it treat envy? this relational arthritis that goes on oftentimes among members of the body of Christ. And so this morning, here's my outline. We're going to look at the cause or the source of envy. We're going to look at, secondly, the effects of envy and consider what that may, how it manifests itself at times. And then thirdly, we're going to try to look at the cure for envy as we look at our study this morning. I hope you have your Bible open. We're looking at Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to re begin reading in verse 16. And what we're looking for is any allusion to the word envy or, or envying or that kind of thing, envying one another. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, and you are not, sorry, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, here's our word, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things 
like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentle, faith, uh, sorry, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to, the, to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, verse 25, let us also walk or make this the pattern of our life by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let us not be envying one another. Well, twice in this passage, I hope you notice that there is uh, alluded to the issue or the topic about envying, and it's mentioned as one of the deeds of the flesh. In other words, that's one of the outward evidences that someone is living, in a sense, with selfish inner desires and selfish motivations. And so Christians are urged not to envy one another at the end of that particular chapter, but rather to live by the Spirit, to live in accordance with the Spirit's leading. The Spirit of God doesn't want people to be living with envy as that which occupies their hearts. Of course, Paul is writing here to these people in the Galatian area, those churches, and he's been concerned because they have been taken off of the firm foundation they were built upon of the gospel according to grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, and they've been encouraged by some false teachers who've come in and said, listen here, you need to add to this idea of trusting in Christ alone and relying on what Christ did to make you right before God. You need to be sure to do this and this and this. And Paul's quite upset about that. And these false teachers have encouraged these Galatians to turn their backs on the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And now they're beginning to encourage to adopt a new gospel. And Paul is just so, he's pulling his hair out. He's so concerned for them and upset. What they're do, beginning to do is they're beginning to follow a gospel that requires them to do whatever they can to make themselves right with God. To put great emphasis on doing certain things to make themselves acceptable in God's eyes and in the eyes of other people. The Apostle Paul reminds his readers, listen, nobody is ever made right with God on the basis of doing good works. No one can earn merit before God by trying to become a person who earns or gains your own righteousness. It's not going to happen, Paul says in this book. No one lives the Christian life, therefore, he says, in your own strength. You're saved by grace, then you live by grace every day. You live by the gospel. You live by the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. If you go back in the chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 3, he says, listen, you relied upon the Spirit of God to impart spiritual life. God made you, came alive. He won, he's the one that brought you alive spiritually, and he changed you by the power of his gospel. He did that great work. He says, if that's true the way you began the Christian life, you shouldn't be surprised that you must continue to rely upon the same Spirit of God that brought you to life to sustain you and live out that life day by day. So he raises the question there in chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, that is, unredeemed sinful humanity? 
course, all this background now opens up insights regarding this topic now of envy. People who live according to the flesh are characterized by various relational sins. He's listed them in chapter 5. You'll notice them in verses uh, 19, 20, and 21. Included in that list is envy. Now, I've given you a definition for envy, which I think is helpful by Jerry Bridges from his book, Respectable Sins. By the way, that should be in quote. Uh, he's written a book about what we think are respectable sins, and he's trying to remind us that's not respectable in the eyes of God, that's offensive to God, and included is a chapter that deals with envy and jealousy and things like that. Here's his definition. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. It is the resentful awareness of an advantage that somebody else has that you don't. A heart that is steeped in envy, instead of loving my neighbor and welcoming my neighbor, encouraging my neighbor, and celebrating my neighbor, and serving my neighbor, instead of that, a heart that's seeped in envy resents the fact that my neighbor is enjoying something or has something or is someone that I am not or, and I do not enjoy. And that preoccupies my heart. What causes this envy? Where does it come from? Well, if you've been listening to our culture, you very much are hearing uh, through various means and various messengers that Envy primarily has to do with the fact that there is a terrible situation in our world of unequal distribution of resources. There's this inequality exists that people have much more than other people, and therefore, that's why we're all struggling with this envy. Widely taught by these politicians and pundits, they offer this is really the problem we must address. We must equalize things more and more, make sure everybody gives their fair share, all these kinds of statements in order to distance and make people feel more um, apart from each other and envious of each other, I think. So contrary to what Jesus said, this is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Maybe you want to make note of this. Mark 7, 21 and 22. Jesus says this, from within, out of the heart of man, proceed what? Evil thoughts. Deeds of coveting come out of the heart. It's wickedness comes out of the heart, as well as deceit. And then the next thing he says is envy comes out of the heart, along with pride and foolishness. You see, the Bible indicates that envy is not due to the fact that we have shortages in our lives or that we feel that other people who have extravagant lifestyles somehow is unfair but it's because, Jesus would say, it's, it's because we have an elevated view of ourselves and what we think we deserve and how we think things should be distributed fairly according to what we think makes the best sense. Another proof of this I would offer to you is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the last chapter of Paul's epistle to Timothy. He touches on this issue and he says this, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, he is conceited. That is, he's got a pride issue. He doesn't want to be taught what the truth is. He wants to come up with his own truth, which is a very interesting symptom of our world today, 
even as we've seen it this past week in some of the, in the Supreme Court decision, people who are not content to let marriage be what it is and has been for centuries and eons of time, but now it, I want to have benefit of this, but I don't want to have the same, I, don't want to, I want to recreate it so that I can enjoy in my own way, in my own twisted way of reinventing things to work for me. Well, anyway, he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, 1 Timothy 6, this person is conceited, has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arises envy. A person who's conceited eventually begin to see that that conceit works itself out of the heart. There's so much focus on themselves, eventually envy is one of the evidences of that conceit. And then here comes strife, here comes evil suspicions, Paul wrote. So an envious heart cannot be blamed then on society. It can't be blamed on your family. It can't be blamed on your, uh, your classmates at school or your co-workers or even your neighbors. An envious heart is not blamed on a capitalistic economic policies. At its root, envy grows out of our own hearts, which are consumed with, at its most rudimentary level, at its most its elementary level, is self-worship. I want to be the one who determines what works, what doesn't work, who gets what, and, and who does not get what. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul alludes back to a time when his readers were not believers. He said, once we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various desires and pleasures, spending our life in malice and what? And envy. That's the evidence of someone whose heart is not relating to God on the basis of the gospel. It's someone relating to other people based on the fact that I think it's not fair that this person has this and I don't. Therefore, I resent it. A heart full of envy. It leads to hateful, hating other people and really a very miserable way of living. Now, what's a good case study in a person who has a problem with envy? Well, let's take a very simple one, a very obvious one, one that is a no-brainer, if you will. And that person is Satan. Satan. Satan is a good case study because... His heart was filled with envy in a very obvious way. Here he is, a created angel, an angel made by God in the presence of God, along with other angels in the presence of God, granted incredible privileges to be one who serves the living and true God in the presence of all of this wonder and glory. But rather than doing what every other angel would be doing in heaven, Satan was not content with that. He yearned to be the one on the receiving end of the worship. He yearned to be God. He's sitting there calculating in his, his thoughts and in his heart to say, why does he get all the worship? Why not me? He's envious. He resented the fact that God alone is worthy to be worshipped. He envied God's glory. And so we read in Isaiah in a passage that you have to understand is using a human king to depict the most evil of all evil wannabe kings, Satan. And he says this, I will ascend, this is Satan, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Those are the words of an envious heart. 
I'm not content with how God has let things be laid out here. It's not appropriate. I want my way. Rather than rejoicing in the wonder of God's ordered design and being content with God's exclusive right to be worshipped, Satan is longing. He's longing to have his, what he, for what, he, he longs for something that's not his own, and he's resentful of God's privileged position. I wonder what about your own heart when it comes to this idea of envying. As I've thought, meditated on this, boy, the Lord's brought a number of things to my mind. <laughs> I'll admit a couple of them here to you today. One is, I must say, I find it, at times, I struggle with people who, again, are hardworking and uh, well-trained people in the education sphere, and I find myself saying, oh, they get another week off of vacation for the spring break. Oh, man, must be nice. A week off in the winter break, that must be nice. And I begin to calculate in my mind saying, that doesn't seem fair to me that these people get all this break time when others of us are working hard. Of course, I don't want to get in their role and teach school for the number of days that they do. So that's a whole nother thing. But that's my heart struggle at times. Nothing against teachers. I love you. You do a, a wonderful work. But maybe among us here, there are some of us who, if you'll be honest, if we could hear your thoughts and understand the the kinds of things your heart struggles with, is it possible that some of us resent the advantages that other people have maybe having to do with their higher income? Or is it possibly their looks, their appearance? Some teens who are looking at other teens saying, oh, their complexion, they don't have pimples, I have pimples. There are others who say, oh, uh, the color of their eyes, oh, I wish I had blue eyes, I, I don't, I'm so frustrated, my eyes are brown. Or there are those who I dare say who are looking at other people say, oh, look at her. She's so skinny. That's disgusting. I hate that. And they get all uptight about somebody's physical uh, appearance and their, their, their body shape or, or their height. Others of us become focused on what people, where they live, their house or their children. Oh, well, you look at that. They've got their kids. Oh, they do this. Oh, did you hear they won another award? And they become resentful people whose kids do well in various areas or maybe you're even resentful that some people have kids and for whatever reasons you don't maybe it's a car maybe it's a vacation that people take that's extravagant or exotic or maybe it's the fact that some people have a boyfriend and you don't and so you're resentful of them and you just can't enter into the joy of that and on and on and on we go i mean the list is endless isn't it Again, where's the problem? Is the problem with other people or is the problem right here? Deep down, if your heart has issues of envy going on, you've got to realize no longer are you focused on loving your neighbor, now you are competing against your neighbor. And that's how envy has poisoned your heart. I wonder if you tell yourself, it's not fair that so-and-so has this and I don't. Or you find yourself saying, so-and-so was asked to do this, and I never get asked to do that. I don't know how much of it's ever happened here. I'm not aware of it so much, but I've been in places, believe me, certain churches, where music and who sings and who doesn't get asked to sing and who's doing this with music and who doesn't. Do oh, my word, people get so bent out of shape. You didn't ask me to play the drums. 
He gets asked, I never, okay, all those issues, again, to me, are, are the evidence of a heart that has become very focused on self. If your heart is set up on yourself above all else, then you probably are, resent, are, are very, less reticent to rejoice with others when they have their good tidings. When they enjoy abundant blessings, you're not able to say, hey, I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. Why? Because your heart is going, oh, please, another increase in pay? You know, another vacation? I don't know if I put this quote in your notes, but this is a helpful quote by Johnny Hunt. He says, those who are engulfed in self-serving, worldly wisdom resent anyone or anything that comes between them and their objectives. Is there a resentment in your heart? It's a good time to admit it. It's a good time to be honest and confess that. It's a good time to be able to say, you know, I, my heart's got some real issues here. You've exposed me. The Word of God penetrates deep down. And we have to admit, we've adopted a carnal mindset. And that's one of the problems that was happening there in the Corinthian church. Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians 3. And he talks about some of the characteristics of spiritual infancy. And let me tell you something. Kids deal with this big time. Why does he get the big truck and I get to only place a little truck? I mean, that's what kids are focused on all the time, isn't it? Sad thing is, we're just like kids. That's the point. We all struggle with the same sin issues. It just comes out in different ways. Well, what I'd like to suggest is, if we admit that we have those problems, and oftentimes what's at the root of the problem of envy is we want to have control. I want to be able to make sure that outcomes and, and, people's, and, the, and the, the spreading of blessings is distributed the way I think they should be done. And so it's a control issue. And oftentimes our hearts are determined that we want what others should or should not have, and we want to be looking to someone, we want to be looking to someone else to give us what only God can give us. We're so focused on this. I'm looking at your life and what's going to happen with you, and that's really robbing me of joy. Why is that? Because I've lost sight of who my Savior is. My Savior's here. You are not my Savior. And what I can get or not get from you has nothing to do with making me right with God, giving me a true identity as being a child of God. So let's move to secondly then, obviously, to look at some of these effects of envy. Our first point was, again, some of the cause of Envy, I would call it the flesh, or pride, or uh, selfish focus in our hearts. But the, the effects of envy is all sorts of evil. Nowhere will you ever see depicted in scriptures any kind of portrayal of envy as something that's beneficial, something that is useful in a believer's life. It's like inflammation in the joints. Envy undermines smooth cooperation between the other members of the body. And so if you're feeling that stiffness today, you're feeling that arthritis because of the weather and what's going on in your joints, let it be a reminder to you that this is the kind of effect it's going to have. If envy is allowed to continue to thrive in your heart, it's going to eventually cause you not to be having good cooperative spirit among other members of the body. Here's an old Greek proverb, I think says it well. As rust corrupts iron, so envy corrupts man. So next time you see something rusting, 
start thinking about that and realize, ooh, that's right. It's almost like the joints are rusting when you've got arthritis. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. What a powerful comparison he's making there. The correlation between the mind and the body. That is, if we were resenting the advantages that other people may have or the blessings that they may have, it may lead you eventually to realizing you have some physical ailments as a result of that. But I think it's more than that. If you read the book of James, chapter 3 particularly, you might want to make your way there. James chapter 3, which is page 1436 in your pew Bible. James is saying that there's He's concerned that the effects are not just in your body, but the effects are side effects of envy. All sorts of wickedness can come if this is allowed to be that which is in place in your heart for any particular time. James 3.16 Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Here's another helpful quote that sort of expands on what James is saying. People who are green with envy are ripe for trouble. And there's a lot of truth to that. You see, spiritual problems like envy within the body of Christ, it will lead to what? Probably a lot of gossip. One of the, out, the fruits of, of an envious heart is, I'm going to gossip about this person, I'm going to say something about them that brings down their reputation because I resent the fact that they are doing this and this and this, or they have this and I don't, and so I'm going to sort of make their world a little less ideal for them. And so the words that people use are corrosive and destructive, or they become much more likely to be in cliques. I'm not going to hang around with this person because they look a certain way or they, they're able to do certain things I can't do, I don't feel comfortable with them, so I'm just going to keep my distance from them and I'm going to remain over here and I have nothing to do with them. As I said in earlier weeks, that's exactly what youth culture is. It's like I'm not crossing over into that group because they're the jocks and these are the brains and these are the nerds and these are the popular people who look good, you know, whatever. They have all these little groups and you don't cross over those very easily. But that's, my friend, what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be drawing people who are different into fellowship together under the banner of we are Christ's. And so social rejection is another issue that I think comes out of this idea of envying. It's like, I'm just going to have nothing to do with you. So much prejudice and hatred, I would say, comes out of that as well. All right. So if our heart has these negative feelings toward what our neighbor has or is, it's more than likely, again, that you're not going to be willing to serve them. You're not going to be willing to help them. You're not going to be involved in trying to build them up. Why? Because you see them as a threat to what you're trusting in to make you complete. So rather your heart of resentment is going to become so much so that you don't realize you're probably slipping into being critical of them. You're going to find much more negative, negative things about them and you're going to focus on those and magnify those in your own mind. And if your heart is consumed with selfish ambition, then your perspective is going to become skewed or twisted, distorted. You're likely going to be insisting on your rights, and rather than edifying your brother and sister, you're more likely to see them as a threat, and you're probably more likely to misread some of their motives. 
This, is, this also affects even marriages. You see the dynamic between a husband and a wife. It's no wonder then that what does James say? He insists that an envious heart attitude is completely contrary to the gospel. James 3.14 But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Allowing an envious attitude to linger in our hearts while affirming your love for Jesus Christ, while affirming the fact that you are to love your, uh, your neighbor as yourself and that that's what you're committed to doing, you play the role of a hypocrite. You're putting on a face, as it were. And envy, I would argue, poisons ministry. If envy is occupying your heart, your ministry is not going to be something that is sustained and effective and truly Christ-honoring. If our primary motive for serving in ministry is to compete against someone else, we have hijacked service for selfish gain. Some people do that. The Apostle Paul saw that firsthand. Nothing new under the sun, folks. Things happen all the time, and nothing new. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, Some people, to be sure, are preaching Christ. That is, they were doing ministry in the vicinity where he had been or where he was. They're doing ministry of even proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ and his uh, salvation within, uh, in his name through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. They're preaching the same gospel, but they're doing it for the motive of what? They're envious of selfish ambition. They're doing it because they want to see a ministry thrive and not you. That's going on in the first century. Paul says other people did it from a good will. They did it out of love. They, they shared the gospel out of love. Some people do it out of a desire to, to promote themselves. That's the thing about envy, like our immune system attacking our own body. Envy attacks those who ought to be our allies. As I've said, musicians who can't work together because they're so territorial. And I've got to do this. And no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to bend. I don't want to flex. I want to do it my way. I'm picking on musicians. Sorry. I've just seen it over the years in other churches in uh, certain dynamics. But Peter points out and hit to his readers, and this is a very important point as well, another um, effect of envy is that if we have envy in our hearts and it remains there while we aren't dealing with it, is that a heart of envy will eventually stunt our spiritual growth. You say, now where do you get that? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, the first couple of verses there, he writes this. He says, put aside all hypocrisy and envy, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. What's he saying? He's saying, if you don't deal with the hard issues of envy and selfish ambition and hypocrisy in your life, he says, you're not going to have a, a very strong appetite. You're eating junk food. In other words, you're satisfying your heart with things that are not the gospel. And your heart is not going to be longing for the, the real, wonderful nutrition of the Word of God. And so you're going to say, I don't need to read my Bible. I'm not, who cares? What my real problem is, 
I'm waiting for God to do this in my life because that person has it and it's not fair. And so this, this issue of envy says you're not going to be reading the word, you're not going to be feeding your soul, and therefore you're not going to be growing with regard to salvation. So one of the things we can do is to say, Lord, I don't want to see these things happen in terms of my relationship with other people and my relationship with you. Help me to deal with this issue of envy in my heart. That brings us to point number three. What is the cure for envy? And I'm going to argue that the real cure and the only cure for envy is the medicine of the gospel. The medicine of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 5, the text where Paul is warning us to not be envying each other, he calls us to stop living according to the patterns we follow before we became a believer. He's, he's arguing, he says, listen, don't live your life separated from God. Don't live your life with your heart um, set upon something or someone other than God to give you the sense of being acceptable, of being right, of, of gaining your own righteousness by finding, having these things. Get your heart set upon Christ. Realize that it's Christ is the only one who can make you right with God and complete you and give you full satisfaction. He says, find acceptance before God in the gospel of grace. And he says, rather than boasting, rather than provoking arguments and having all this envious desires toward one another, verse 26 of Galatians 5, he says, surrender to the Holy Spirit. There's part of the key right there surrender. If you think of it as get off of the throne of your own heart that says, I want what I want and I want to see the things that I desire become true in my life and I don't want these things to be true in your life. Get off of that throne and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be on the throne of my heart and life. I want to yield to you. I want to submit to you. I want to offer to say, I'm here to serve you and your agenda, not to be the one who's trying to be in control and have my will to be done. It's the Holy Spirit. As we surrender to him, he's going to be doing what? He will convict us of sin. He will point us in our need of correction. He'll bring that very clear to us through his word, which I hope he's being done today. And then he will do what? He won't just leave us there to condemn us. He then points us to Christ. He says, go to Christ. Bring to Christ your envious heart. And say, Lord Jesus, you alone can satisfy my heart. You alone can satisfy this longing. What is it I've been looking for for this other person that I can't be content with where you are and I'm too busy focusing on this? Teach me to be satisfied with you and the glories of the gospel of who I am in Christ. The Holy Spirit will remind us that all of us desperately need a Savior. <laughs> and Every time you find the, <clears throat> your heart feeling more envious towards someone or something, some brother or sister, it's a reminder of what? <clears throat> My heart is not filled with love. I need a Savior. I need Christ. And envying, <clears throat> excuse me, is the fruit of an elevated heart. So one of the best cures for a heart that's been elevated beyond where it should be is to be, have a restored perspective and perhaps a proper outlook of who God really is. And that is have a proper reverential fear or awe of God. The fear of God. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 23, 17. Maybe you want to write this one down. Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. 
reverential understanding of what? I am not God. You alone are God. Teach me, Lord, to submit to you and what you've done in your sovereign ways. It's a huge difference. Look at the quote there of Charles Spurgeon in your notes. The cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, worshiping God and communing with Him all day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. You want a cure? The Bible is pointing us in that direction. It's the gospel. It's learning to understand, have God back on the throne and understanding that it is Christ who therefore is the only one who can satisfy us and have us enjoy all the fullness of, of a relationship with God. Again, I would say one helpful illustration of this, if you want a, a person's example and their testimony in regard to how God helped them with their envious heart, is to go back and I would encourage you to study Psalm 73 on your own at some later time this week. We read about it in our responsive reading, but here's a person who is applying to their heart the medicine of the gospel, the medicine of the fear of God to their hearts because they have spiritual arthritis. They've got this envy going on. In Psalm 73, in your Bible, in your pew Bible, it's in page 703, he starts off by saying that his, he admits, my heart is ensnared. My heart got really trapped in this idea of this envying all these people around me, especially unbelievers. He says, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Why is that? I think it's because he was looking all around him at what everybody else had and he didn't have. And he's like, man, what's going on here? And I think that became something that was going to trip him up, spiritually speaking. He says, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The guy that wrote this, his name is Asaph. He was focused on all these material blessings of people who didn't for one moment of one day in their life have a desire to honor God. No interest in that at all. I'm living my own life, doing my own thing. And man, life looks so good for them. They're well fed. They're enjoying life. They got so many of the good things of life. And here's a guy who's suffering, who's dealing with difficulty and trials and tragedies in his life. And he's like, where, God, where are you? What is this? Is this what I get for all my devotion to you? His heart is tripped up over this. Envious desires. He is lessened. His sense of honoring God, his right perspective on God, and what happens? He no longer sees God as sovereign. He wants to be sovereign. He wants to be God. He's like, change things, God. This is not right. So he realizes that there's a lot of injustice in this world, a lot of things that he wishes he could correct in the world he didn't like. And Asaph learned after a while when God dealt with him, Thank God, God patiently does deal with us. His focus, he admits, had become distorted. And rather than trusting God, rather than submitting himself to God in his sovereign ways, he had been spending so much time questioning God. Why are you doing this, God? It doesn't make any sense. It's not fair. After a while, Asaph probably assumed that he knew better than God. If you look at verse 26, though, of Psalm 73, after a while, Asaph got his perspective restored when he was in the Word. 
he's with the people of God. He's worshiping God with the people of God in corporate worship. He's being reminded, hearing the word, and he's now realizing who God really is. And he says he realizes that his flesh and his heart may fail, and they probably had been failing, and they probably were failing at that time. He says, but God, you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. That's his admission there. Asaph is saying, I'm humbly admitting, I'm not God. I'm a creature who is not able to become complete on my own. I need you, God. He needed to accept the fact that God sometimes gives to other people what we think they don't deserve. And yet he says what? His perspective, he forgot, was only in the moment. He had forgotten there's a much bigger view of eternity that God has where God is going to change things. Those who are, are refusing God's ways, those who are, are uh, in a sense, as it says in Romans 1, those who are um, suppressing the truth, determining with all their effort not to give in to what they know is right, and they're going to recreate the world, the moral world. They're going to turn the morality upside down. They're going to say that what is bad is good, what good is bad, and we're going to invent things that work for us, and we're going to deny God's ways and say we're going to celebrate all of our ways which are contrary to that. Scripture says God will give them up. Let them go on their own. And we're seeing that play out in our, in our own day. What I'm saying to you is this. Asaph had forgot that God someday is going to bring justice. He is going to make things correct in the way they should be. He is going to bring about his righteous rule and reign. And he had forgotten that. He had forgotten that someday, even though he suffers in this world, there's such wonderful delights in the presence of God with a new resurrection body someday. <laughs> no more pain, no more suffering. And thus he finally came to affirm what some of us need to affirm today, and that is this. God is good. God is wise. God is sovereign. Therefore, I will trust him. I will serve him. I will be content in him and in his ways. I will acknowledge that God knows what's best. He has not made me the arbiter of how things should be distributed in this world. It's not my, I have no power over all that. That's not my job. God has appointed different members of his body with different gifts, different roles, different situations in life, different material blessings. And God knows what he's doing. And we can trust him to use us as we are. You don't have to be six foot three to be a person who can serve Christ. You don't have to have a thin body to be acceptable before God. God takes people who are different and he says, there's a place for you in this body. You're my child. And God knows what he's doing. We can trust him to use us as we are. He can use other people as they are <laughs> because he's all wise. Let's not second guess God. Let's humble ourselves and submit to his ways. Let's reflect on his grace, reflect on his mercy. And here's the final point. One of the cures and the ways in which we fight against a heart that tends to go toward envious thoughts and attitudes is to develop in us the regular pattern and heart discipline of being thankful. Learning to thank God 
learning to, to see the, the goodness of God, learning to see the blessings of God, learning to, to appreciate the fact that God has shown you mercy and grace. He has been showing you evidence of His goodness for every day of your life. So often we've overlooked it. So the more I'm thankful, the more what? Less likely those envious yearnings will grab a hold of my heart. And don't say it won't come, but it's a good discipline to try to, out, to replace it. And so therefore we can be thankful in every circumstance knowing this is God's will for us. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at these issues today from this portion of your word, surely your word has penetrated into our hearts and revealed the fact that, Lord, we do struggle with this idea of being envious of others. We have some resentment going on. Lord, for those of us who are in that place and are sensing your spirit's conviction today, we want to admit that to you. We want to acknowledge that. We want to humbly confess that to you. I want to acknowledge that that's wrong, Lord. We know that you hate that. Lord, also for some of us, it means it has, it's affected how we deal with other people. We've been avoiding certain people. We've been having these awful attitudes toward other people. We've been saying things about them or carrying on and, and trying to uh, somehow imagine things evil happening to them because we just feel like their life is too perfect or too good. And we ourselves are so discontented. So, Lord, where your Spirit is pointing out these things, we pray that you might help us to admit the truth, help us to see it from your perspective, and then help us all, Lord, to flee to Christ, to run to Christ, to cry out to him to save you, to give you a new heart, to root out envy and replace it, Lord, with love and contentment and thanksgiving and submission and humility and a, and a sense of awe and amazement at who he is as God. Lord, teach us to be humble before you and to see you as you really are, as the true, good, wise, loving God who is worthy to be worshipped. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.